Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're doing another in a series of shows from Spokane, Washington. The occasion is the ASI International Convention. It's 2015 in the month of August when we're recording this broadcast. And across from me, as we've had the privilege to do throughout the course of this meeting, is another wonderful guest. This time it's Reese Rafferty. Reese, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Reese, you are the health educator for an exciting uh, team of people. You call yourselves light bearers, and uh, you really are touching people throughout the world, aren't you? Definitely, all over the world. One of the things I know people have appreciated about you personally and your work is you have put together some very succinct uh, health education pieces over the years. Tell me what you call that little sheet that you, you put out. What well, is now it we've entitled it Alive. 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 Because, you know, it's interesting to me that when you go to your doctor's office, many times people will, um, or the doctor may ask you how sick you are. We think of health in terms of whether it's an absence of disease or pain. But what if we looked at the other side of the continuum and said, wow, what's the potential for, for life and really feeling good? And, and so my articles are an attempt to push the envelope in the other direction. Well, you know, Reese, you've got training as a, uh, as a dietitian. You've been doing health education for years. And one of the exciting things to me with this series that you've got called Alive you're talking with people right where they're at about practical health issues. Tell us some of the things that you've covered recently. Recently, we were looking at subjects such as colon health. Divertic- colon health. Yeah, diverticulosis, something that 40 to 60% of Americans experience after the age of 60 years old. So tell us a little bit about just exactly what that is. Diverticulosis is um, when their outpouchings occur in the colon most of the time than the last, the distal part of the colon, and it's been associated with a lack of fiber and with increased pressure. Okay, so when someone has a condition called diverticulitis, what's what's going on there? That's when there's an infl- inflammation. That's when all of a sudden um, maybe there's an infection that's developed, and for some reason there's an inflammatory process that occurs, and then it becomes very symptomatic, or it can become very symptomatic. So the problem begins with these little outpouchings that they call diverticuli. Mm-hmm. And then if they get inflamed, you can have diverticulitis. Right. And they can rupture and cause serious problems, right? right? Mm-hmm. So you actually, based on your research, I mean, it's not individual research, but from studying what's been published out there, you're educating people on how to prevent the underlying condition to begin with, right? Yeah, I think it's totally fascinating that really... A healthy diet that includes a robust amount of whole foods, foods that come from the ground, fruits, nuts, grains, vegetables, legumes, which are all really rich in fiber and phytochemicals and a wide array of nutrients that interact in our bodies in ways that we still don't even fully understand, that this diet that's so rich in these elements 
can be therapeutic and preventative for so many Western ailments, in, you know, from the from the heart to the colon. And diverticulosis or diverticulitis is just one of those diseases. You know, and I'm glad you're talking about this because many times when we talk about healthful living, people focus on these big killer diseases that we think about, you know, heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure, cancer. But so many people have intestinal problems, and this problem that you're talking about affects millions of people, but we usually don't talk much about it, do we? No, definitely not. In fact, the the doctor, Dr. Burkett, who is well-known for connecting fiber with diverticulosis. He was actually a physician, a missionary physician that went down into Africa. Can't remember exactly which country he was in. Went to Africa and there realized that basically diverticulosis was unheard of. It was unknown. It was not experienced by by the people there. And he compared their diet, the amount of fiber they ate, their stool. It was interesting how he investigated that. And one of his conclusions is that America is a constipated nation and that um, the smaller the stool, the more you're going to be in the hospital. So basically, here's a fellow. Granted, he's in Africa. Mm -hmm. Dr. Burkett Mm -hmm. was at that time. And he's looking at indigenous peoples. He's looking at the indigenous diets that were plant-based. And he's saying they got great colon health. And I think probably if Burkett had been studying First Nation peoples in the Americas who were living, following their indigenous practices, he would have probably come to the same conclusion. Can, mm-hmm. we, can we safely assume that? Definitely. And while modern medicine will say we don't know the cause of diverticulosis, the association, and like you said, when we look at different indigenous groups of people, yeah, makes sense. So we can definitely improve our colon health. We can decrease our risk of this condition, diverticulosis, and its related problem, diverticulitis, by just eating more fruits and whole grains, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Great. Reese, tell us some of the other things that you've been writing on and that people have been responding to. Well, kind of in connection with what we've been talking about in terms of colon health, I've been finding it fascinating that... The state of the colon, the health of the colon, specifically what has been termed the microbiome. And the microbiome is a term that's used for the microbes that live and inhabit our colon, bacteria, fungi, mm-hmm. um, and, and that this ha- plays a central role in people's health, including weight. It's been fascinating for me recently to read some of recent research that deals with the fact that researchers are finding how you take obese people mm-hmm. and those who are thin and you compare their microbiome you compare the microbes that are living and inhabiting within their colon and there's a distinct difference really? and they're finding that yeah that there are certain strains that are associated with obesity and there are certain strains that are associated with being thin so now i mean this is one of these chicken or egg questions i mean Does the obesity mess up the germs that live there, or are the germs actually causing them to gain more weight? Do we know that yet? Well, I think there's. um, we can take some of the research that's been done with animals, with rats specifically, to maybe Mm -hmm. give 
shed some light on, on that and provide an answer. And that is they've taken rats. They've taken um, sterile rats, rats that were grown um, so they, they don't have any microbial population. Okay. And then they populate them with these specific strains, uh-huh. and, they fi- and they feed them the same amount, the same kinds of foods. But they find that the rats who've been populated with the same strains of, that obese people have, become, they gain much more weight. Wow. They become obese rats. So another um, research um, study that's been done is where they take rats and they feed them different types of diet. And they do find that, yes, they develop different microbes based on the kind of diet they eat. So I think it's both. Oh, to answer okay. your question, I think that diet impacts the state of the microbiome, the uh-huh. state of what microbes are actually living and thriving in that environment and then the microbes themselves they accentuate they develop so so basically you're saying that the microbiome these bacteria that are and fungi and other things that are in the gut the diet that a person eats influences those germs and those germs somehow predispose someone to either be thin or to be more overweight. Yes, they promote that state. Okay. So basically, if I'm listening right, and people are looking at this literature, are they already out there trying to change people's flora, as we call it, change their microbiome to try to foster weight loss or weight gain? Well, it's interesting because research is based on what can we produce to actually make money. You know, and there is research of people who are trying to develop a certain strain that then could be given to obese clients, and that would hopefully populate them. And that's what they're all, they're working on now. So yeah, there there is um, development in that area where it would be a pharmaceutical that would be sold. However, I think why not go to the very root, just like they did with the rats? Why not take it back to the diet okay. and through diet? Gradually, but definitely changing your own internal um, environment through what you eat. And it's interesting because I'll call them the good guys and the bad guys. Uh-huh. When we, we're talking about the fungi and the bacteria that inhabit our, our colon, the good guys thrive off of fiber. Just what we were oh, talking okay. about earlier. Okay. So they, that's like their, where they get their energy. They digest the fiber. That's what they exist off of, and it causes them to thrive. And whereas the bad guys... They like the sugar. They like the refined foods uh, that our typical American eats a lot of. Okay. So what I hear the message is based, I mean, we might not say all the dots are connected, but, Reese, you're telling us that if we eat more of those plant foods that are high in fiber, we can actually be changing the bacteria, the things, the microbes that live in our gut, and that can actually help us to lose weight in and of itself if we're overweight? Absolutely. You're going to be changing and transforming yourself from the inside out. Wow. And so how much fiber is in something like wild game, for example, or fish? Very little to none. Oh, okay. So someone may be eating some of that, but you don't want to stock up on that. It may feel fibrous because of muscle, tendon, you know. Uh But fiber that we're talking about is what's found in foods that come from the soil, foods that are grown. So if we were visiting with a tribe and they said, you know, we value the three sisters in our culture, the corn, the beans, the squash, are, are those good fiber I'd sources? i right on. Perfect, okay. beautiful. Okay, so you've given us some great insights, and I know our time in this segment is slipping away, but there's folks that say, I mean, it's 
lady sounds like she's on top of things, talking about things that I'm interested in. You have a lot of free resources, right? Yes. How does someone get those? They would access our website, Lightbearers, Lightbearers, B-E-A-R-E-R-S dot org, and um, they will find our alive monthly articles, and or they can call and ask for free printed. We also print them. They can ask for those free printed copies and receive them, or they can be put on our email address and receive them monthly if they would like to receive the monthly free health educational literature that we provide. Now, wait a minute. Did you say pre-printed or free printed? Both. So we have some that are logged that I've, you know, been writing for years in the past. And then they can be put on our mailing list and then continue to receive them monthly. So if a tribe who's listening today has a health clinic and they said, we'd like some health education materials that focus on more of a natural lifestyle. That's what you write about, yes. right? Yes. They could actually call, and you'll send them, I may say, we could use 500. I mean, do you do stuff like that? Maybe not the Alive articles, but we do have health tracks. And they would contact Mark at Light Bears Ministry, and the phone number is... Let me get this. Let me make sure we got it. Okay, what's the phone number? 541-988-3333. And they would talk to our bookstore manager, and we would be happy to provide health literature. Okay, so it's 541 area code? Mm Mm-hmm. And then what's it after that? 988-988-3333. Reese, you are doing some great stuff. I know you're impacting a lot of people. Before we close, you've worked with so many people over the years. I know your work is international. You send things all over the world. If someone was just caught the program right now and you were to give them three key health tips to make a difference for their health? What are the first three things that come to your mind? I'd let them know that they have the capacity, they have the power in their hands to transform their lives, that um, they have the ability to make little changes that that the body can do amazing things with. Mm. And um, I think the, the body has amazing ca- capacity for regeneration and renewal if we provide it with the right um, tools, with the right nutrition and that's basically what we talked about. That's what I believe the three sisters and a high-fiber diet and eating as close to nature and, and whole foods is going to provide. Wow. You actually did do three, even though you didn't number them that way. Reese, thanks for the great material you continue to put together. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Before we have to run off one more time, how does someone contact you at Lightbearers? 541-988-3333. Or they could email me personally at R-I-S-E at LBM.org. Okay, again, that number, 541-988-3333, or Reese, R-I-S-E, at LBM.org. Yes. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't go away. Some more great guests. In fact, an amazing physician with some amazing insights for you. Coming right up. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this.
My name is Florence A.Q. For lunch today, I had grilled chicken and squash. I am Zuni Indian, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. My name is D. Dakota Denesosi. I turned the TV off and took my nieces and nephews for a walk. We saw two jackrabbits, an eagle, and zero cartoons. I'm from the Dine Nation, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. Science has proven that if we lose as little as 10 pounds by walking briskly for 30 minutes, five days a week, and make healthier food choices, we can prevent diabetes. My name is Barbara Akisakpuk Curtis. I'm losing weight and being more active. I am Alaskan Inupak Eskimo, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. For more information on how to prevent diabetes, talk to your health care provider. For free materials, call the National Diabetes Education Program at 1-800-438-5383 and ask for the power to prevent diabetes. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Meryl Streep. Over the years, I have played some characters you could call controlling. But the truth is, there's so much in life we can't control. But here's something we can. Colorectal cancer. It affects men and women, and it's the second leading cancer killer in the U.S., which is astounding, considering it's almost entirely preventable. Here's how. Most colon cancers start as polyps, and screening helps find polyps so they can be removed before they even turn into cancer. Screening also finds this cancer early, when treatment works best. For me, screening was simple and quick. It was no big deal, except for the huge sense of relief you feel afterwards. There are several tests that you can choose from. If you're 50 or older, you should talk to your doctor. Decide which one's right for you. Take control. Do everything you can to prevent colon cancer. Screening saves lives. It could really save your life. For more information, call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. With me now in our virtual studio in the Spokane Convention Center is Dr. Robert Hunsaker. Dr. Hunsaker, it's great to have you with us. It's good to be here, Dave. Good to see you again. Now, Bob, if anyone knows about your background, they'd say, wow, we've got a cutting-edge physician with us. I mean, you actually practice in a place far from Spokane, but many people say that you're practicing in what some people would say is the, the, the highest-tech medical area in the world. Tell us a little bit about where you're at. Um, well, I, I live and practice in Boston, and as you said, it's... It's appreciated. Some people call it the Athens of the West just because there's a real sort of emphasis on culture and education and especially in healthcare and biotech and um, those kinds of areas. So yeah, there's a, there's a culture, I guess you could say, of uh, one of the most prominent medical journals, New England Journal of Medicine is, is published there. So yeah, I think there's a culture of, of academics and study and, and, and uh, thinking that that's a positive thing, I think. And you're, very much enmeshed in that culture because you're actually not just a practicing physician, you're also on the teaching staff of, is, is it Tufts University? Yeah, so my academic appointment's at Tufts University School of Medicine, and you know, we do not as much research as a lot of people, but we do some research and are involved in some multi-center trials and um, doing small case reports and those kinds of things. So we try and stay active um, in research, too. 
And so tell us a little bit about your type of uh, practice. What is your specialty? So I'm an anesthesiologist, so I work almost exclusively in the operating room. And um, my fellowship training and most of my practice on a day-to-day basis is in people having open-heart surgery. We call it cardiac anesthesia. So if someone's coming in for um, coronary bypass surgery, if they have blockages in their heart, or someone has valvular problems, leaky valves in their heart, those kinds of things, that's the kind of thing we take care of on a fairly regular basis. Now, what's fascinating to me, Bob, is you're this high-tech physician. I mean, I I don't, when people talk about high-tech, they think, you know, brain surgery, heart surgery. I mean, these are some of the, you know, most Mm -hmm. cutting-edge areas of medicine. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sure I could have other specialists disagree with me, (laughs) but but at least lay people, they think, I mean, this is cutting-edge medical science. That's what they say. It's not brain surgery, for example. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So, but, but here's the thing. You're here at this venue, and you're not just uh, in the exhibit hall with me, mm. but they've had a, a series of uh, presentations. Mm-hmm. You were a featured speaker mm-hmm. in this venue, and you were talking about something that I just thought was amazing. And because I was recording radio shows, I couldn't get <laughs> to your seminar. But you were intrigued by kind of an old... Uh, philosophy that's been out there for many years and you're looking at modern science tell us what what piqued your interest yeah so my lectures here at uh, the convention hall were on something called epigenetics epigenetics yes. break break that down for so us so i think a lot of us are familiar with the term genetics or genes and right. that refers to the inheritance that we get from our parents and from our ancestors and you just add the word epi which is just a greek word for on or above Mm-hmm. So it's meaning things that are above the genes or on the genes. And basically what it refers to is the things that control our genes or the things that control on the expression of our heredity. So we all have genes, but they're not all on at the same time. So the body has a control mechanism for those expression of those inherited factors. And that control mechanism is called the epigenome or epigenetics. And as you were alluding to, I, what kind of got me interested is there's a... Um, an ancient phrase, it's actually in the Bible and, and what we would know as the Ten Commandments, part uh-huh. of most people have heard of that. And there's this statement about um, the, the iniquities of the fathers being visited on the children to the third and fourth generations. And some people take that to mean that, you know, there's a God up in heaven who punishes grandchildren for what their grandparents did. Mm. Um, but my talk was just exploring the science behind the cause-effect relationships of what that's referring to, rather than some type of imposed penalty by a deity, you know, arbitrarily uh, imposed on grandchildren for their grandparents' mistakes. So it's really describing a cause-effect relationship, and my talk was basically tying in um, epigenetics into that cause-effect relationship. So let me see if I can uh, reframe things a little bit, make sure I'm following along with you. So most of us grew up, at least in my era, thinking that genetics predisposed you to all kinds of things. It was this hand that you got mm. dealt mm-hmm. that you know, once you got the gene for X, Y, or Z, you're going to have this condition. But what we're learning now is there's certain things in the environment, in the lifestyle, that can either activate or perhaps even inactivate those genes. Is right. that right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so the whole idea of there being a gene for something. So you'll hear, you know, a gene for, um, you know, 
uh, alcohol, for example, or a gene for obesity, for example, or a gene for sexual orientation, for example. Uh-huh. Those really aren't the best ways of saying it. Um, okay. What we want to say is more things like uh, there's, there's genetic influences on our health. There's genetic influences on our behavior. But with exceedingly rare exceptions, none of those are determinative, meaning if I have a genetic a predisposition to something, it doesn't determine what I'm going to do or how I'm going to be, but it's an influence. Okay. Just like, as you were alluding to, there's environmental influences, there's uh-huh. cultural influences, there's um, all sorts of influences that we encounter. Um, and all of those things add up to a certain outcome or not having a certain outcome. And then this uh, statement about effects being visited to the third and fourth generation, you're saying there's actually scientific evidence that the way... I live, yes. the choices that I make yeah. actually can affect my children and grandchildren. Yeah, let, me, let me just give a, a one example. Please, um, please. I'll start with an animal study that I think is very, very fascinating. Um, if you take uh, uh, mice, for example, and you expose them to a certain odor, okay. so they, they smell something, and then shortly after that you give them an electrical shock, and you do this over a period of time, kind of conditioning them to the scent and then the negative stimulus, which would be an electric shock. You do that over time, you condition them. And sure enough, after a period of time, that as soon as they get the smell, they don't have to get the shock. They immediately get anxious and stressed mm-hmm. out and mm-hmm. cower in the corner of their cage. So the shock doesn't come, but just the scent itself causes them to cower in the corner and be stressed out. Well, if you take those mice and mate them uh, with another, uh, another mouse, have their offspring, take that offspring, mate them with another mouse, now you're taking the grandchildren. Okay. So now we have the grandchildren, that first mouse uh-huh. that was exposed to the scent and had that negative stimulus. Now you take that same scent that you gave to the grandparent mouse and you give it to the grandchild mouse. Uh-huh. Guess what he does? Yeah. He gets stressed out. Really? He gets anxious. He hides in the corner. He's never smelled the scent before. Uh-huh. He's never been exposed to the negative electrical stimulus. But he has the same behavioral response to that. He gets nervous. He gets anxious. His stress hormone levels go up. And in fact, when you when you do brain examinations of the grandparent mouse and the grandchild mouse, mm-hmm. they have the same brain structure. It's wow. changed. So when that initial mouse was exposed to the scent and the negative stimulus, his brain changed. You can measure that. And that same brain change you find in the in the grandchild offspring uh, of them. So what's the take-home message from that? Well, the take-home message, at least on the mouse level, is when I go through an experience, it's actually changing me. It's changing my brain structure. It's changing the DNA structures that I pass on to future generations. And so if something happens to me, to varying degrees, depending on the experience, that has the potential to impact how my grandchildren, my offspring, experience life. Wow. Or things that I feel may not all be related to, to my experience, but may be related to my ancestors' experiences. There's a real continuity that that's sobering and powerful. Well, and, and I mean, of course, in Indian country, one of the issues that researchers have talked a lot about is historical trauma mm. and how yes. the effects of that, you know, can, can influence a whole community. Right. Yep. Some individuals who don't have that mm-hmm. heritage have said, no, there's no such thing. But you're saying, actually, uh, I'm just listening. Yeah. On a, on a real genetic basis, you've just given us an illustration. Yeah. And let, let me give one example, Dave, uh, Dr. Rose, from, from human data. Um, okay. It's a little less intuitive, but it's just as powerful. So there's been studies, uh, one specific one is something called the Dutch hunger famine. 
So during World War II, over in the Netherlands, there was a period of time when a large portion of the population didn't have um, any access to good caloric intake, didn't have enough food. They were basically starving for a period of about six months. Well, it turns out they followed those women who happened to be pregnant during that starvation time. They looked at their children, their grandchildren, to see, well, are there any effects in the children and grandchildren from uh, being conceived and being in, in the womb during that time when this famine was going on? Mm-hmm. And sure enough, there were all sorts of health consequences related, not just in the children, but in the grandchildren. Wow. So if your grandparent, uh, your grandmother, for example, while you were in the womb was exposed to starvation, particularly during the first trimester, you uh-huh. had a much higher incidence of obesity as the grandchild. Really, so, obesity? You'd yeah. almost think maybe it would be the opposite. Right, direction. yeah. It depend, but now, it depends on when when you were conceived and when the famine occurred during the pregnancy. Okay. So th- that's kind of a, a health outcome, but not just health outcomes. Behavioral outcomes were different also. If your grandmother was experiencing low caloric intake during that famine period of time, when she conceived, there was a higher instance of psychosocial problems, uh, anxiety uh-huh. disorders, depression, those kinds of things. Uh-huh. Not just in the children. But in the grandchildren. Wow. So again, when when we go through experiences, or our grandparents went through experiences, um, those have the potential, in a very uh, profound and significant way, to to pass on certain um, predispositions and influences to us as as offspring down the road. I mean, this is very sobering because you're talking about influences. Some of them are during actual conception yes. or pregnancy, yeah. but others in the first mouse study that you mentioned would be later on in life yeah yeah and i think i think you can see that too in things like um, alcoholism and substance abuse we need to talk more about this okay. but our time in this segment is rapidly slipping away i'm talking with dr bob hunsaker bob is sharing with us some amazing things that talk about the influence we have not only in our life but on future generations you don't want to miss our next segment we've got more coming up american indian living will return stay tuned for more American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. I'm Karen, and two very important people in my life, my husband and my father, have been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, or AFib, is a type of irregular heartbeat. People with AFib are five times more likely to have a stroke than people without AFib. Talk with a healthcare professional today about your risk and learn how to manage AFib to prevent a stroke. Visit stroke.org slash AFib to learn more. My name is Mira Batra. I have been in this country 32 years, and this is how I live united. America has always been the land of promise, and in my community, many families have come for a better life. Coming from another culture myself, I know the desire to become part of a community, to feel at home, and to gain the tools for our children and families to succeed. So I advocate for these families with United Way. United Way empowers them to look beyond their histories and to see what opportunities are available. We help them get involved with their kids' schools, network within the community, and when we do, we unite them. We make the community stronger. What I do is something I wish someone had done for me, and I am so grateful I am able to. My name is Meera Batra. I help families see opportunities and succeed. I don't just wear the shirt. I live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. 
Did you know that 63% of homes contain allergens from cockroaches? And that mice spread potent asthma triggers found in 82% of homes? It's true. Common household pests are major offenders on the list of indoor allergens. Learn what you can do to help your family breathe easier. Visit PestWorld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association and the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose broadcasting from a venue in Spokane, Washington, in a convention center here where the ASI International Conference is being held in 2015. Across from me, Dr. Robert Hunsaker. Dr. Hunsaker, if you missed his introduction earlier, is a cardiac anesthesiologist. He specializes in that field in one of the most high-tech places in the world, in Boston, Massachusetts. So on one hand, he's rubbing shoulders with uh, some of the leading health professionals in the world. And at the same time, he's looking at some ancient counsel that suggests that our parents, our grandparents, might be influencing some of our risk for Mm -hmm. mental and physical health issues. Bob, we've been talking about this subject. It's fascinating, but some people might be getting kind of depressed. They're thinking, well, my mom, my grandfather, they had some serious health issues, Mm -hmm. some serious problems. Does that mean I'm doomed to similar problems? Yeah, Dave, can I just read a quote from one of the the leaders in this field? I think maybe we'll bring some clarity to that. Please, please do that. Um, This is a, a guy named Dr. Jertle, and he's one of the fathers of this field of epigenetics that we've been talking about uh, in practical terms, like you said, the influences that others and our ancestry have on us and the influence that we have on our our, uh, um, progeny going down forward. And he made this statement. uh, This is uh, from Discover Magazine, which is a a fairly well-known layperson science magazine. That's Mm -hmm. why I chose it as a quote. But he says, epigenetics is proving we have some responsibility for the integrity of our genome. Before, listen to this, genes determined outcomes. So we had this idea that, you know, if you had a gene for something, you were kind of locked into it. You're sort mm-hmm. of, sort of stuck. Uh, no freedom, uh, no, no free will involved there, really. But he says, now everything we do, whether we eat, whatever we eat or smoke, can affect our gene expression that of future generations. Epigenetics introduces the concept of, this is what he says, free will mm-hmm. into our idea of genetics. So what he's saying there is, is, we don't need to be bound by our hereditary lineage. Um, we're not locked into some sort of historical um, issues that our, our parents or grandparents did, but we can introduce free will into our experience. And to me, that's, that's powerful, but it's good news. It allows me to appreciate that, sure enough, yeah, I do have some predispositions and tendencies that I wish I didn't have, but those don't override my free will. This is powerful. I, an example immediately comes to mind. Some years ago, I was speaking to health professionals at a tribal health clinic. Uh-huh. And I remember one of the health professionals telling me they had just seen a patient, a young man, very young. I think he was 12, 14. And it came out in the dialogue that this young man felt that he was destined mm. or predisposed mm-hmm. to have diabetes to lose his legs, Mm. and to end up on dialysis Uh because that's what he had seen in his family. But what you're saying is this field of epigenetics gives us good news that we don't have to follow that path. Right, yeah. 
Can I read one other quote? Please, please. So this is one specifically regarding substance abuse, but even though it's it's talking about substance abuse, there are other studies that say basically the same thing for other disease states like diabetes, like obesity, and also for certain mental health issues like depression, uh-huh. like anxiety disorder. Great. So So even though this particular quote is from a study regarding addiction, the point that it makes can apply to many health behaviors and psychosocial behaviors. So, okay, let's hear it. This is uh, a paper from a couple years ago. It says the convergence, he's just uh, assessing all the different research findings. The convergence of findings from a range of genetically informative research divides, including adoption studies, family studies, and twin, twin studies, provides compelling evidence suggesting that alcohol, nicotine, cannabis, and other illicit drug dependents are, now listen to this, influenced by heritable factors. So hmm. important that we said they're influenced by heritable factors. Despite this, there is nothing deterministic about the genetic basis, or the environmental basis for that matter, he says, to addiction. Now listen to this also. There's no single gene that causes addiction, but multiple genes of modest, cumulative, and interactive effect that shape the liability to addictive behaviors. So what he's telling us there basically is we don't have to live under the shadow of what our genes may be, may be tending us towards. Hmm. Their influences, um, they're there. But we have the ability not to be locked into those destinies. So basically, if someone today is listening, they say, it seems like most of the people in my tribe end up with mm-hmm. this condition or deal with this problem. You're saying that one individual or several can actually rewrite the history yes. of their tribe. Yes. And they can start a new epigenetic heritage for their progeny. Wow. They can shape a different course. Now... It doesn't mean it's not, it's going to be easy all the time. Mm. You know, you need to get information about what the right choices are. You need to have a support network, hopefully to help you make those right choices. Um, then you need to actually act on those choices. But when you do that, you can change your destiny and you can change the destiny of your, your children, your grandchildren. That's wow. a powerful, what a privilege, what a blessing to be able to, to change the direction, um, that our ancestors made in a more positive way. I just take that as really encouraging. No, it is. And, and I appreciate you tying it into this concept that I've heard many people express. Mm-hmm. You know, that somehow there's a creator, as you uh, read earlier in the show, that visits iniquity mm-hmm. to the third and fourth right. generation. Like you said, many people think of some kind of punitive... Uh, Arbitrary imposed penalty, as opposed to what he's describing there is a natural cause-effect relationship. Wow. Do we have any other science, any other studies that come to mind that, that drive these points home? Anything that when you talk with people, you, you were here, I know you sp- uh-huh. spent uh, quite a bit of time. I think it was an hour and a half or something in, in your presentations. There's just a lot of a lot of evidence, hard to even know where to begin. I'll, I'll just give you one example, and this has to do with mothering tendencies. Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll give you a mouse study again, for example. Okay. But there's similar things, not quite as tightly data controlled because humans are much more complicated than mice. But if you take in, in the mouse mouse world, um, a nice behavior that baby mice like is to be licked a lot and groomed a lot. Now, mm-hmm. I know when you grew up, if you had a <laughs> smudge on your face, what would your mom do? She didn't lick it. Oh, but wouldn't she wet her fingers sometimes and kind well, of... she'd clean it, sure, sure. Yeah, with her fingers? Um, I don't remember. My mom would lick her fingers and then wipe the smudge off my face. Really? I hated that. It was gross. But if you're a mouse, yeah. that's a great thing. You love it. Okay. You know? So, so if you have a really highly functioning mouse mother and she licks you a lot, you're a very secure, you have low stress hormone levels, you uh-huh. interact with the environment in a very positive way. If you have a mouse mother that doesn't do those things, doesn't lick you, doesn't groom you, doesn't take good care of you, grow up as a very stressed, anxious kind of mouse, well, 
when they checked those mouse's um, uh, brains, they found that certain parts of the brain had taken on different shapes. Well, so they said, well, I wonder if that's genetic or that's environmental or what is that? So what they did was they took the babies, they did another set of experiments, they took the babies from the mothers that were good, gave them to the bad mothers, huh. and took the, mother, the babies from the bad mothers and gave them to the good mothers, and sure enough, it was the licking behavior of the mother that changed the anxiety level. So if you had a a, a, a good mouse mother, even if you babies were from the bad mother, uh-huh. they would become secure, low stress hormone levels, uh-huh. in, interacting with their environment very well. And when they checked their brain, sure enough, it was the mother's licking behavior that had caused those brain changes. And the changes in the genes also uh, went along with that. Wow. So basically what you're saying to parents and to grandparents, to aunties, what, the extended family, you're saying if you treat children Right. If you give them a secure environment, it actually can change their brain? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm going to even broaden it, Dave. Yeah. I'm going to say we have the ability as individuals to affect everyone around us in a positive way. Wow. So, you know, the more frequent the interaction is like a parent with a child, the more profound that is. Uh-huh. But even if you just have uh, acquaintances, coworkers, people you interact with on a, on a less frequent basis, when when you interact with someone in a positive way, you're reducing their stress hormone levels. You're raising their good hormone levels like serotonin and dopamine. So uh-huh. it actually matters how we relate to each other. Wow. And and depending on the frequency of those interactions, um, there's brain architecture changes. There's changes in the in the epigenetic patterns uh, in the brain that are profound. So, you know, I don't take that as discouraging. Like, oh, I've got a lot of responsibility. I take that as, as liberating. I can be a blessing and a help to so many people just uh-huh. by being... By being supportive, encouraging, friendly, courteous, um, all the things that make for a, a, a positive society and positive relationships. Wow, this is just amazing information. And I think it, it really is both sobering because if someone... responsibility. Th- right, yeah. right. And, and I, you know, sometimes, and I'll just be honest with you, Bob, a lot of times there are experiences in people's lives where they say, I need to get serious about how I'm living. Yeah. In other words, uh, you know, maybe it's becoming a father or a mother. Right. Yes. Uh, maybe it's uh, ending up being in a, a tribal uh, office, right. whatever it is, where someone says, you know, I've got to really be more conscientious mm-hmm. at this point in my life. But what you're really saying and what the research seems to be saying is you, if you want to get the maximum impact, mm-hmm. you don't want to wait until then. The sooner you engage in those changes, the better. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the more influence you can bring to bear in your experience and the experience of others that are positive, whether it's lifestyle changes, which are positive, things like exercise, right, diet, right, sleeping patterns, those are positive, but also social relationships, um, psychosocial interactions, all those kind of things have a bearing on our, our how our brain functions, its structure, and on the epigenetic makeup in our brain. These things have all been studied. And I could I could keep you here all night with just uh, data showing how uh, this all all produces itself. Uh-huh. But uh, again, I take courage from that. That when I operate in my sphere of influence on right principles, um, whether it's in relationships with others, whether it's in um, the things I eat, the things I do, these have implications for me in a positive way. They have implications for my offspring in a positive way, and they have implications for those around me in a positive way. Mm-hmm. We can really be influences to those around us to uplift things, to, to move things in a positive direction. Um, we're not slaves to our environment. We're not slaves to our genetic heritage. Um, we're free beings to just um, encourage and uplift those around us. Now, I know we talked a lot about examples 
that relate to behavior. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned some things about addiction. Mm -hmm. But we didn't really speak anything specifically about what we eat. Okay. And I know a lot of times when we think about influences on the body, right. you know, we're thinking of diet. Have they shown that diet actually impacts our epigenetics? Yeah, and yeah absolutely. And it, I'll just go back to the mouse study about the, the good mother mouse. Uh -huh. um, you can actually, so one of the things that happens in the brains is these, these epigenetic markers that I was mentioning to are up or down regulated. You can also upregulate or downregulate those same epigenetic markers. So a good mother's licking her babies by changing the diet of the, of the child, uh, the baby mouse. You can also change those epigenetic markers. Oh, okay. So, so on the one hand, you have a behavioral interaction between uh -huh. a mother and a baby that do that. But also things you eat mirror those same types of interactions. Hmm. So the things we eat are, are affecting and influencing and changing those epigenetic markers that we have. Um, there, that's one example. There's all sorts of cancer genes that can be turned on and turned off by mm -hmm. what we eat and what we don't eat. Exercise influences these epigenetic markers and, and how many of them there are and whether they turn things on and off. So all of those things are, are significant. Amazing stuff. Well, our time is rapidly uh, slipping away, but before we uh, have to finish out this segment, and I know you've got to run, and again, we appreciate you, you joining us, Bob. Good but to be here. We talked about diet. You gave us some encouragement with with behavioral things. What kind of behaviors are are, are building up these good aspects? What kind of dietary things should we focus on if we want to have the best genetics? Yeah, so the, the people should be moving as 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 rapidly and as quickly possible to a more plant based diet. The best epigenetic things you can do for your epigenetic health is to eat more and more of a plant based diet, less and less of an animal based diet. Um, that would be the number one thing I would say. Wow. Number two would be exercise. I would say those two are the most important factors in giving yourself an epigenetic um, makeup that's the most positive for your health. Tremendous. Bob, listen, I know you got a very busy schedule. Thanks so much it's for pulling here, away, joining us, and sharing with it's us some great information. <laughs> it's mutual. We're going to be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. Another great interview coming up before we finish out the show. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. What I say, you already know, but you don't believe. You won't accept, you don't conceive. When you're inside your car, you feel safest of all. Are you safe? Are you? Two tons of sheet metal in your hands. Two tons don't run on autopilot. You have a mission. It's no collision. Hold the phone. Don't text. You're angling to be next. Oh, you've done it before. What's the harm? Just this once. There's no alarm. Got your hands on the wheel? No big deal. Brothers and sisters, you won't see it coming. You're off the road. Your life explodes. It's not worth it. Don't do it. You only think there's nothing to it. Put it down, hang up, pay attention to highway action. Behind the wheel, there is no such thing as a small distraction. Join the conversation at DecideToDrive.org, a public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, who would rather help keep your bones strong than put them back together. We are here to say a word about cancer. When you talk to someone who has been diagnosed with cancer, be positive. Be supportive. That's it. 
Stop right there. Don't start telling them about your Uncle Vern. Or the next door neighbor. Don't be grim. Try not to disappear either. Don't cross to the other side of the street. Don't stop calling. Don't cry. Don't ever say you're living my worst nightmare. You know who you are. Here's the important part. Be positive. Be positive. Se positivo. Say these words. You will do great. Keep calling. Check in. Be a friend. Or be a new friend. Be a supportive. Positive friend. Smile. Try not to be afraid. Or act afraid. Fear is not useful. Be a funny, hopeful human being. If you come across cancer, let it transform you into your most positive self. And inspire. Urge. Fortify. Rally. Encourage someone to do great. This message brought to you by Cancer Survivors. For more information, to hear stories or share your own, visit DoGreatCampaign.com. Do great. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. We're still in the convention center here in Spokane, Washington. And now across from me, really, a, a perfect conclusion to our program. We've heard from uh, Reese Rafferty talking about how our diet can impact the health of our colon. We heard from Dr. Bob Hunziker. Bob was telling us about how we can affect future generations by the choices that we make, including our diet. And now we've got Ernestine Finley. Ernestine, really, I feel like you're a perfect way to close the show because you've been working helping people make healthy lifestyle changes for many years, right? Yes, in fact, over 40 years. And it's been exciting to see how people can make lifestyle changes and actually lower their cholesterol, uh, actually reverse diabetes, Uh too, how they can have a lower risk of some of these chronic diseases like cancer and heart disease. And and so it's exciting to see uh, how people are, are motivated to make good changes. And one of the things that I really like to help people with is actually eating a good breakfast. This is fantastic. And then this is why I've got you here, because it's one thing to talk theory, but you've been literally all over the world teaching people how to do simple things so that they can do practical things like eat a better breakfast, right? Exactly. In fact, breakfast, uh, Dr. DeRose, is the very word itself uh, it is important because it breaks the fast of the night, mm-hmm. and many people have been fasting for 10, 12, 14 hours, and now we're in need of a good meal, and wow. yet people are eating uh, very little for breakfast, sometimes skipping breakfast. Um, several reasons for that is that they say it's inconvenient, they don't have time, mm-hmm. but I share with them how they could set the table the night before okay. and be ready for breakfast, to eat a good breakfast, or just plan ahead. And the reason it's inconvenient is because they haven't planned ahead. Mm-hmm. But another reason they skip breakfast is that they aren't hungry. And most okay. people are not hungry because they've eaten too late at night. And then other people uh, say, well, I want to lose weight. But losing weight is not the way, it's not the way to go uh, to skip breakfast. It's better to skip the evening meal. So skip the evening meal, and then you'll have a better appetite for breakfast. Exactly. So you have a, a cookbook out that gives practical secrets for better breakfast eating, right? Tell us about oh, that. Oh, yes. 
It's called Natural Lifestyle Cooking, and we have well over 100 recipes in there. And I have a whole section on making breakfast a better meal. And we have all kinds of different recipes from granola, a breakfast cereal, to something as simple and easy as doing something like applesauce on toast. Now, wait a minute. Applesauce on toast, that's a good breakfast? Oh, you get the grains and the fruit that you need because you just take a piece of good whole grain bread. Okay. And there are many places, many stores that uh, have whole grain bread today. Mm -hmm. And put some peanut butter on there. Okay. Because then you're going to get some good protein. Right. And then add the applesauce. And applesauce is so good because you're going to have some good boron in there, which boron builds bones. Okay. And that helps... Uh, with all the osteoporosis that people are getting today. Mm-hmm. And then even put some berries on there and maybe sprinkle some nuts on the top, and you have a good, nutritious breakfast. And it doesn't sound difficult, does it? Because you can buy the bread. You can buy even the, buy the applesauce. Oh, I just bought, in all the cities that I go in, I just buy unsweetened applesauce anywhere I go. Okay. Now, when I'm home, I make my own home canned applesauce. Uh-huh. But... I travel all over, and I just buy all over the world even, and many places I just buy some good applesauce that's unsweetened. What a great idea. So yeah. someone can eat the whole grains. They can get the fruit. They can add the uh, nuts. So you got your fruit, nuts, and whole grains. And we should have for breakfast at least, you know, two or three even more kinds of fruit. Mm-hmm. And then some grains. And so you've got your grains with your bread. And your nuts, and maybe even some seeds, because, you know, things like pumpkin seeds, uh, sunflower seeds, Mm -hmm. flax seed is so good. You've got those good omega-3s in your flax seed. Mm -hmm. And so that's a wonderful breakfast. Tremendous idea, Ernestine. (laughs) Now, there are some other simple things, though, that people can make from scratch if they have the time. Are, Are there some quick things that people can make for breakfast? Easy. I have one called Finley Family Favorite Oatmeal. Okay. And all I do is put in, put the water on, put just a little bit of salt in it, mm-hmm. and then I add dates. Oh, just okay. Just some sweetened by dates and just put in some good oatmeal. And the wonderful thing about oatmeal, Dr. DeRose, is this, that it's not refined. Mm. It's not like your flour where you're taking all your good B vitamins out and all your fiber out and all your nutrients. You have good quick oats or rolled oats that you can use and you just you can use either one and it's quick and easy you just put it on and let it cook there for a few minutes and it's done ready so have you found that some of those people that say i don't like oatmeal with your recipe they actually like it they really like it really they really like it and another good inexpensive breakfast Mm -hmm. are beans Beans are full of fiber, protein, good nutrients, and I just take some good navy beans or pea beans, and I just add some salt and onion, and that's it, and water with those beans. Doesn't it take a long time to cook? No, because the way I do it is um, I I parboil them. What does that mean? That means I put them on with some water, Uh and I boil it for about one hour. Okay. Then I set it aside for one hour. Uh-huh. Just 
you know, you can do other things while you're doing that. Mm -hmm. So you just boil it and go and do your things and then come back and then uh, put them on again to boil for an hour and then uh, add some onion. And when they're nearly done, you add a little bit of salt to it and they are wonderful for breakfast over toast, whole Mm. grain toast. People come to my cooking schools and they love the breakfast beans. It's a favorite. Now, what's amazing about your advice is I often, as a physician, recommend my patients, especially if they have diabetes, that they try to incorporate beans into every meal. And what you're saying is, you know, it may sound strange, but you've tried this in many places, and people say, we really like those breakfast beans. Oh, they love them. And I have a recipe for them in my Natural Lifestyle Cooking book, and... um, People absolutely are amazed that they can taste so good. But I'm, I'm listening to you very carefully, though, Tini. You might convince us that these taste good. You've you know, told us you know, the taste test has been given by probably hundreds, thousands of people that you've trained. But I also heard about the time factor. And people don't have, most of the people I know, they don't have you know, an hour or two hours in the morning to make the beans. Are you suggesting they make them the night before? Yes, they can make them the night before and then just all you do is warm them up the next morning. And so you can make them before and the actual work time is very little. You just actually wash your beans so it takes just a couple minutes Uh and then put your water in there just the time it takes you to, you know, chop an onion Mm -hmm. and that's the only work time that you have with it. The rest of the time... You're at home while they're, you may be doing your wash or you may be doing your ironing or you may be cleaning your house. And then you come uh-huh. back and turn the burner off and let them sit there for an hour. And then you come back and it's simple. So you boil them for an hour. What I do is I boil them for the first five minutes. Oh, okay. And then set them aside for an hour uh-huh. and then come back and bo- and and boil them for uh, until they're n- nicely done. And how long does that usually take? Um that that'll take about another hour. Okay. And so uh, by the time they're done. And I know some people talk about using crock pots. Is that something yes, you recommend? Yes, a crock pot is wonderful. And f- the nice thing about a crock pot is that you can put them on at night. And just put it on and, and leave it overnight, and it'll be done in the morning. Okay, so that'll work too. Oh, that's wonderful. Great. And so you have lo- There are so many ideas for a plant-based vegetarian for breakfast that I can't even begin to tell you all the different ideas. Tremendous. Ernestine, we are just about out of time, but before we have to run, tell us how someone could get a copy of your cookbook. Well, they can go to pacificpress.com and ask for natural lifestyle cooking. Okay, so the cookbook is entitled Natural Lifestyle, lifestyle cooking, cooking, and yes. the publisher is Pacific Press? Publisher is Pacific Press, and it has a picture of a breakfast food on the cover, granola. Okay, great. So pacificpress.com. Yes. Ernestine, we got to run. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully today's show has opened your eyes to to how lifestyle can change your genes, how lifestyle can help you reduce your risk of colon problems, and how simple it is 
to change your diet, Ernestine giving us some very simple ideas that you can eat a better breakfast, change your own health, and change the health of generations to follow. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service.